Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. Now, if you're looking for a church home, a place that you can connect with other believers, learn about God's Word, and seek together to grow and to impact this community, we invite you to join us at Calvary. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and you can find out more information at calvaryfayetteville.com. If you have questions, email us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com or call us at 479-442-4634. Now in today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is continuing our study on the church with a message entitled, The Church, People of Faith. Today he's looking at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 19. Let's listen together. No doubt we would all agree that faith is an essential ingredient to the Christian life. That probably is too light-hearted of a way to say that. It's not just an ingredient. It is the essence of what the Christian life is all about. In fact, were it not for faith, we would not, we could not be a Christian at all. No hope of heaven, no hope of eternal life, were not for the fact of faith that is the gift of God. This is what a few samplings of Scripture says about faith. In Romans 14, we find the words, whatever, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Hebrews chapter 11, in our chapter we are walking through ever so slowly it seems. We read last week where it said without faith it is impossible to please God. Going back to the Old Testament the prophet Habakkuk made a declaration so profound and so powerful was the truth of it that Paul repeated it to the Romans, also when he wrote to the Galatians, and whoever is the author of this book of Hebrews, all quoted the words of Habakkuk when he said, the just shall live by faith. James, the brother of our Lord, said this in James chapter 2. Faith without works is dead being alone. So I hope just from those four statements about faith, you see how profound and how absolutely essential that it is. Now to understand the working of of faith in our lives, how it comes about, let me remind you as we talked about just a couple of weeks ago, that basically there are, there are three stages of faith in the way that it comes to our lives. First of all, uh, remember that, that faith begins in the head. Faith comes by hearing, the book of Romans tells us, meaning not so much the 
audible sound or the words, although for most people that is the way that Scripture and truth and faith begins its journey in their lives, is through the preaching of the Word. But it's not just the ability to hear it. It really means faith comes by understanding, by being able to comprehend the gospel message, not comprehend the greatness of it or the magnitude of it or the magnificence of it for your human mind. I don't care if you got an IQ of a, you know, what's a high IQ, 150, 160? I don't care how high your IQ is. You can't comprehend the magnitude of the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus' Son. But you can comprehend the fact that you are a sinner, that you're in a world of hurt apart from God, and that the only way to appropriate the fact that Jesus Christ stepped into time and space and he chose to wear your sin and carry your sin and be nailed to the cross because of your sin, that he died paying the penalty for sin in your place. You can understand that. And that through him is the only way to eternal life, to, to understand with the mental fac faculties the gospel. It begins in the head. Now, it doesn't stop there. If it stops there, it's just a mental assent to the truth of God's Word. And a mental assent is not enough. Somewhere it goes from the head to what we say is the heart. And again, it's not the, the muscle that pumps the blood throughout your body. We use the heart as the Bible talks about it, being the seat of your will and your emotions, you down deep inside. And what you understand with the mind leads you in your will to surrender your life to his truth. To those who received him, to those he gave the power to become the sons of God. Understanding with a mind, surrendering in your heart and your will, and that results in a change of life. Every time. Not most of the time, not some of the time, but every time. If you are what you have always been, you are not a Christian. Therefore, if any man or any woman be in Christ, they are a new creation, a new species of being that has never existed before. Now you are a person born again, and a life change happens. So that's what faith, when the Bible talks about it, is all about. So how does that faith work itself out in our lives? What are the outward characteristics of a changed life? How do we see faith in our lives and in the lives of other people? That's what Hebrews chapter 11 is all about. Now it doesn't anywhere in this chapter talk about a quantity of faith, how much faith you have to have, for the emphasis is not on quantity, the emphasis is on character. What is the character of your so-called faith? 
How has your faith in the Lord and God's response and God's work in your life, how is that uh, being manifested in your walk with the Lord? So we have a working definition we've been emphasizing, and it is this, that faith is trust which produces obedience. Faith is not just an attitude. It is not just an internal feeling. Faith is trust which produces obedience in your life. And the key truth that we've emphasized in recent weeks is this. Talking about the Lord's church, the true church of Christ is comprised only of those who have put faith and trust in Jesus as their Savior. Now Hebrews chapter 11 gives us 16 names of people of faith. 14 of these names are men. Two of them are women. We've learned so far from three of these men, very brief messages, Abel, Enoch, and Noah. We've learned that Abel shows us that faith worships. Faith worships. That's the kind of obedience Abel's faith in the Lord produced. He was a worshiper of God. And then we learn from Enoch that faith walks. We know very little about Enoch's life except that he walked with God. And he did not die a natural death. He was translated in some way from this life to the next. And he walked with God and uh, his faith was rewarded and blessed. And then we learned last time from the life of Noah that faith works. Noah labored for 120 years for, because he believed and had faith in the message of the Lord that a day of judgment was coming. And the only escape for he and his family was to obey the Lord in the building of this ark, this giant boat. Now we come to Abraham, to Abraham. And more of Hebrews chapter 11 is devoted to Abraham than any other example. Abraham is a significant person in scripture. His name is mentioned at least 294 times in the Bible. His name just keeps popping up, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. And although he lived early in the Old Testament, and we read his story in Genesis chapter 12, uh, chapters 12 through 25, his shadow is cast over the entire Bible all the way through the New Testament scriptures. Rather than covering the essence of his whole life, we'll let the uh, Hebrews chapter 11 account serve as our scripture today. Follow along as I read. Beginning in verse 8. Notice, by the way, how many times the words by faith show up, not only in Abraham's account, but in this whole chapter. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, 
heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Now let me just make an observation about this next paragraph. He's going to come back in verse 11 to Abraham's account again. But it's almost like verses 13 through 16 are kind of a parenthesis. He gives an explanation. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. What did faith look like in Abraham's life? Well, you heard the account right there from the Hebrews' description of it. There's much more to the story. But these are somewhat the highlights of Abraham's expression of faith. Did he ever fail in his faith? Did he ever struggle with trusting God day by day? Yeah, he failed. Like all of us do. But by and large, what a man of faith he was. Abel taught us that faith worships, as we already mentioned. Enoch, that faith walks. Noah, that faith works. Now Abraham teaches us that faith waits. Faith waits. I don't know about your Christian experience, but I find it easier to worship, easier to walk, easier to work for Christ than I do to wait for Christ, to wait on God, to be patient with God's work in my life and on my life. I find that kind of waiting very difficult. And like several of the men and women 
whose stories we read in Scripture, there are times I get ahead of God and try to make what I believe to be His will happen in my life. Sometimes like Saul, who I was just reading about yesterday morning, rather than waiting on God, looks to other means. Or maybe like Isaac, rather than waiting on the Lord to try to accomplish God's will in my own way. And on and on the story goes. What did faith waiting look like just in the day-to-day experience of Abraham's life? Well, let me give you four characteristics of his walk, and I'll just give you these quickly because it's not all of the message by any means. Four characteristics of Abraham's faith. He believed God, had faith in God, when he did not know where God was going to lead him. Abram, as he was known, was a son-worshipping, not S-O-N, but S-U-N. He was a son-worshipping idolater living in Ur of the Chaldees when God separated him out of Ur and began to lead him to another place that he had for him. And then the pause came upward in Mesopotamia where living was good, but was not the place that God had ultimately prepared for him. The land was Canaan that God had in mind. But Abram did not fully understand that. He didn't know what that land was going to be like. It was not his ancestral home. It was not someplace he had ever heard about from his family members who came before him. He believed God and followed God, had faith in God, when he did not know where he was going to end up. Not only that, but even when he got there, He lived all of his life in tents. He lived all of his life as a pilgrim. The scripture tells us he was living for and looking for a city that had foundations. A city whose builder and maker was God and God alone. He was living not ultimately for what this life had to offer, but for what the next life had has to offer, and he is an example for you and me today in that regard. How often do you think Abraham, living in his foundationless tent, looked upon the cities of Canaan and thought how nice it would be to live in a house with foundations? where you could build a fire and stay warm. How nice would that be not to pick up my tent and have to move ever so often to follow the flocks and the herds. How much better that would be. But he wasn't living for that. He was believing God and following God when he did not know where it was going to lead in this life. When his precious wife died... Even though the land of Canaan, the Bible said, was his inheritance, that it belonged to him, he had to bargain with a Hittite king for a place to bury his beloved Sarah. 
He believed God when he didn't know where. That's verse 8. He believed God when he didn't know how. That's verses 11 and 12. God said to him, if you read the story in Genesis, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Your descendants will be like the stars of the sky, like the sands along the seashore. And he said, that's what your family is going to look like. But he was old and unable to reproduce children by what he had to offer. And not only that, but his wife was barren and she was too old and she could not bear children either. Even when he did not know how God was going to do it, he still believed God. It says, by faith, Sarah, in verse 11 By the way, you study that and you listen and you read from commentators and Bible scholars and there's a big debate whether the faith in verse 11 is Sarah's faith or whether it is Abraham's faith. If you remember when the angels came to their tent and told them this time next year your wife Sarah is going to have a child and Sarah was eavesdropping from inside the tent, what did she do when she heard the angels speak? She laughed. Yeah, right. I can imagine that happening. You know, those days are over. She didn't seem to be that much of an example of faith. But then as you read it there, Neither did Abraham so much. Probably this is referring to to both of them. But somehow the Bible says they had faith. They believed when they didn't know how. Third, another characteristic, characteristic of Abraham's faith, he believed God when he didn't know when. When he didn't know when. They were given promises, these patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they were given promises that they never saw fulfilled in their lifetime. Just like God has made you some promises that very well you will never see fulfilled in this lifetime. But will you keep walking? Will you keep trusting? You see, he was looking for a city with foundations, a city whose builder and maker is God, and he did not know when he was ever going to experience that, but finally he did, and it wasn't in this life, it was in the next. And fourth, he believed God when he did not know why. When he did not know why. Here is this one son, this miracle son, probably at least 12 to 14 years old, A strong, strapping young son that Abraham was so proud of. And God said, okay, Abraham, now I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to take him to Mount Moriah, the future place of the city of Jerusalem, the future place of the Temple Mount, the future place where God will be worshiped as a nation among the nation of people, the nation of Israel. I want you to go to Mount Moriah, take your son, and offer him up. Why would God make such a demand? Why would God test our faith in such a way? My friend, he's required the same of you who are parents. Are you willing to give up your sons and daughters 
to the God you serve. Oh, maybe he does not require that you sacrifice them with a knife through the heart and on a fire, a fiery altar. But to give your children to God is no less of a sacrifice when God calls you to do so today. Will you trust God with your children? Will you trust God with your grandchildren? You see, faith, the faith exercised by Abraham and demonstrated by his obedience is a faith that resulted in his justification. That he was made right before God because he trusted God as the Savior of his soul, the Lord of his life. Romans chapter 4 goes into great detail about Abraham and justification by faith and by faith alone. And you find in, Hebrew, or in Romans chapter 4 that the Lord says that Abram was not justified by his righteousness. It wasn't by his effort. It wasn't by his good works. It was not by his race as a Jewish man. It was not by his ritual, the ritual of circumcision or any other religious ritual. It was not by his religious practice. It was not by the altars that he built. It was not by all of these things. He was justified by one thing and one thing alone, and that is by faith. He was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as taught in God's Word alone. And it is the same pathway to Christ for you and for me. That our religion's not going to do it. Our goodness is not going to do it. Our righteousness, our race, no earthly ritual, faith and faith alone. But let me give you another key truth, and this is where we're going to head to the close with today. I want you to see this. The story of Abraham is a story of God's providence. Are you familiar with that word, providence? All of our lives are stories of God's providence. It's hard to see God's hand of providence in our own lives. It is easier, if you tell me your life story, for me to see God's hand of providence in your life then I can sometimes see it in my own. It is easier for all of us to see it in the story of someone in the Bible, someone long gone like Abraham. But oh, what a story of providence it is. The story of Abraham, it teaches us that faith waits, but it is also a story of God's providence. So what is providence? How would you define it? And I would suggest to you that the only way to really understand providence in the Bible is to understand, at least acknowledge, sovereignty, God's sovereignty in the Word of God. Because these two words work 
together. And you don't have one in the Bible without the other. Let me explain. By the way, I want to suggest to you that the Bible never uses the word providence. And also, it never uses the word sovereignty. It only uses the word sovereign three times. It always refers to the sovereign Lord or the sovereign God. But don't let the fact that providence and sovereignty cannot be found in the Bible by their names. For by the way, discipleship, that word is never found in the Bible. Evangelism is never found in the Bible. Counseling is never found in the Bible. The word Trinity, for Pete's sake, is never found in the Bible. And yet we know all of those are true, right? We know all of those are things we can read about. Well, and so it is with sovereignty and providence. Let me give you a very terse definition for sovereignty. It is God's right and power to do all that he decides to do. Sovereignty means that God has the right. He is God. And he has the power to do everything he he decides or desires to do. Job 42 verses 1 and 2 says this, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Nothing man can do, nothing Satan can do, nothing any person or power or demon of hell can do to upset, short circuit, or thwart God's sovereignty. Okay, got it? Sovereignty. God's power and right to do all that he decides to do. But now understand, that definition mentions nothing about God's wisdom. It suggests nothing about God's plans. It suggests nothing about God's grace or God's love or God's mercies. That definition is just about right and power. He has the right and he has the power to do what he decides to do. Now to take sovereignty and put it in a Christian context, this is where you have to bring in God's love, God's mercy, God's grace, God's plan, God's work, in history and in time. This is where we have to flesh out what sovereignty looks like, and this is where we discover providence. Providence. For you see, providence is God's sovereignty in the service of God's purposes. Providence is how God works out His sovereignty in the purpose he has for your life. It is how God accomplishes sovereignty where he is not just a distant God, 
who has the right and the power to do whatever he wants to do. For he certainly is that, but he's not just a distant God. He is a personal God who desires to have a relationship with you. And since we are fallen human beings, it requires that God do something to help change that or to accomplish change. And so he gives his son Jesus Christ to pay the payment for our sins. Part of how we see God's sovereignty being worked out in providence is how God sent his son Jesus to die in our place. And then how he takes steps to make his plans happen in our lives. And what we see in the story of Abraham is how God is constantly working to fulfill his purposes in Abraham's life. Did you get that now? Providence is how God's sovereignty gets, works, gets worked out in our lives. By the way, the very word itself, providence, has a, has a root and a prefix to it. The, the root in Latin is where we get uh, our word for video, to see, to see. Providence, pro video, to see. The pro, the prefix, means to see it beforehand. It is a prior seeing, but it is not just a seeing and not just a foresight. It is to not just see our lives, but it is to see to our lives, to get personally involved in our lives. That's providence. It is God seeing to everything in the world. And it's why Isaiah 46.10 says this, the Lord speaking, I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I will accomplish my purpose. My sovereignty, I will see to it that it gets fleshed out and accomplished and caused to come to pass. We might say that, that providence is wise and purposeful sovereignty. Now in Abraham's life, in our text, we see it at least three times. God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, and Abram had faith when he did not know where, but what did God do? Did God provide a place for Abraham? Nod your head, yes. He sure did. He provided a place for Abraham. The land of Canaan, the land of his pilgrimage, where he will spend his life before his ultimate place that he provided for him. That city with foundations, whose builder and maker is God. God provided all of that for Abraham. Providence. God told Abram that he was going to be the father of a great nation of people, but he had no children. How could this happen? Abraham had faith and believed, although he could not see how that was going to happen, but did God provide a son? Nod your head, yes, he did. He provided a son. 
When it came time to offer that son on Mount Moriah, Abraham packs up the wood for the altar. He takes a knife. He takes a couple of servants and he takes his son, not telling Sarah what this is all about. And he makes his way. And when he sees that place of sacrifice in the distance, no doubt, old Abraham's heart is just beating hard. But he gets to the base of that mountain and he says to the servants, you wait here while me and the boy go offer a sacrifice to God. And on the way up, Isaac's no dummy. He says, Father, we have the wood. You, you have the knife. We're going to build an altar. But where is the lamb? And Abraham says in Genesis chapter 22, God will provide. First time that word is mentioned in Scripture. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went up the mountain together. Later in that same chapter, it says, So Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide. That's the name he gave to it. As it is said even to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. They stacked up the stones for an altar. They put wood on the altar. And I don't know how this took place. I don't know what words were said. They're not recorded for us in Scripture. Somewhere, Abraham said, Son, give me your hands. And he tied his son's hands. And somewhere in all of that, he said, Son, you are God's lamb. You are the sacrifice. And he had to lift that boy up, that young man up, and place him on the wood. And Abraham lifted the knife. He was that close when God spoke to him and showed him a ram whose horns were caught in a thicket and the Lord provided a sacrifice. Providence. The working out of God's sovereignty in a man's life. My friend, that's your story. You, if you're a child of God, you are the Abrahams of this story. You are the Sarahs of this story. Do you trust God when you do not know where your next step is going to take you? Do you trust that God is already there 
preparing a way and a place for you? Do you trust God when you do not know how in the world he's going to fix this problem, this challenge, whether it's financial, whether it's emotional, whether it has to do with your work, whatever it has to do with, whether it has to do with your family that maybe is divided and it seems like we can never get it back together? Do you trust God that God can do that when you don't know how? When you don't know where, when you don't know when. I've prayed about it and prayed about it and prayed about it now. It seems like for years I've grown discouraged praying that God would ever work this situation out. Do you trust God? Do you keep walking in obedience? Because your faith is a trust that produces obedience in your life. Do you trust God when you do not know why He has taken away, maybe from you, the nearest and the dearest person in your physical life? Can you trust God? Can you trust God in your autumn years? when it seems like every day someone else, a friend or a family member or an acquaintance has left the walks of this life. Maybe your own health failing. You trust God anyway. God provides for you anyway. We are reminded of this when it comes to God's Love and care. And I've kept you far too long. Give me just a couple more minutes of your time. Here's providence, promise for you and me. Romans chapter 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Just a few verses later. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Listen now. He who did not spare his own son. What Abraham prefigured, God followed through with and sacrificed his own son to provide a way for you. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God has already given the most precious thing he had for you. Why would he hold back anything less? that you need for your life. Have you ever thought about what God was doing before time began? Before he created not only people, but even before he created a universe, a solar system, when there was nothing but 
God. Not God and empty space, for even empty space is something that we quantify. But when it was just God, Father, Son, and Spirit, what was he doing? You say, oh, that's impossible to know. No, it's not. I know what he was doing. I only know one thing, but the most important thing for you and me. He was making provision for lost sinners like you and me. We were already in his mind. We were already on his heart, whatever that looks like. Jesus already stood as a lamb slain even before the foundation of the world. And he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I'll leave you with this. It's one of the oldest sayings of the ancient church. The forerunners of you and me, of saints who are now triumphant in heaven while we're still militant, living out and fighting the Christian fight here. One of their favorite statements was this, Deus pro nobis, being translated means God for us. God is for you. God is for you. He is for us. And there is nothing that has the power to sever the relationship that we have with a loving and sovereign providence. A brief prayer. Pastor Alistair Begg says it like this. Father, help us to rest our heads on the soft pillow of your providence. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for your work in our lives even before we drew a breath, for calling us to yourself in time and space, for helping us to believe. Father, help us not doubt your providence, your grace, that wherever it is you lead us, you're already there. Whatever we need, you've already provided. And day by day, help us to walk with you, to worship you, to work for you, and yes, even to wait for you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas or looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.